0: Setting limits with others, especially in high-conflict situations where they're needed more than anywhere, or actually in any uncomfortable situation, is hard for most people. So we've created a place to learn how to do it in our virtual live lab, where you'll meet live, one-on-one, with one of our coaches to learn how to set limits. We'll use some of our own scenarios, and if you want, we can help you learn to apply them in your unique situation as well. It's a small investment with significant positive outcomes for you and for everyone involved in the situation. Schedule your live lab at highconflictinstitute.com slash live-lab or call us at 619-800-2070. Welcome to It's All Your Fault on True Story FM, the one and only podcast dedicated to helping you identify and deal with the most challenging human interactions, those with someone who may have a high-conflict personality. I'm Megan Hunter, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Eddy, and our special guest, Amanda Ripley. We are the co-founders of the High Conflict Institute in San Diego, California. Today, our format is slightly different, as I'm actually on the road and unable to participate in the discussion, unfortunately, but that's okay, because I think you'll be very fascinated listening to two people who have dedicated a great deal of their lives to resolving conflict, to understanding human behavior, and to just helping others understand conflict, uh, particularly high conflict. But first, a couple of notes. If you have a question about high-conflict situations or a high-conflict individual, please send them to podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or on our website at highconflictinstitute.com podcast, where you'll also find the show notes and links. Please give us a rate or review and tell your friends, colleagues, or family about us, especially if they're dealing with a high-conflict situation. We're very grateful. Now, here's what you've been waiting for. I'm so very pleased to welcome Amanda Ripley to It's All Your Fault podcast. It's a rare, rare privilege to have the opportunity to have a New York Times bestselling author on our show. In fact, this is the first time. So um, Amanda is a best-selling author and investigative journalist. She started her journalism career covering courts and crime for the Washington City Paper. And then she spent about 10 years working for Time Magazine, one of my favorites growing up, um, in New York, Washington, and Paris. Currently, Amanda lives in Washington, D.C. with her family. And um, to discuss her writing, she's appeared on various uh, major programs like ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, and NPR. And she's spoken at the Pentagon, the Senate, the House of Representatives, the State Department, and the Department of Homeland Security, as well as conferences, I'm sure there are many, on leadership, conflict resolution, and education. And, of course... She is the author of High Conflict, her third book, which was preceded by two other great books, The Smartest Kids in the World, which was a New York Times bestseller, and The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why in 2008. And she happens to have an engaging, positive, upbeat presence that makes everyone around her smile. At least I know she makes me smile. Um, And when I think about it, she motivates us to do better in the world. So welcome,
1: Amanda. Amanda, welcome to the show. You've had a powerful career as a New York Times bestselling author and an investigative journalist. Can you tell us briefly what led you to this career?
2: Sure. Thanks for having me, Bill. I'm really glad to be here with you. Um, Excited for this conversation. So I was a journalist for 20 years and then about... Six years ago, I started feeling like something was going on in the country that I did not understand, and it was <laughs> deeply unsettling. I had covered a lot of conflict. you know, I'd covered terrorism and crime and disasters and education, which actually had the most conflict uh, and mm. uh, And then it just felt like the conflict, the political conflict we were in as a country was no longer. Behaving in a linear fashion. Like I couldn't make sense of it. So I sort of stopped what I was doing and started learning from people like you who work intimately with conflict, but differently than journalists. So, you know, everyone from psychologists to lawyers to mediators, negotiators, gang violence interrupters, and just trying to understand. Mm-hmm what I had missed. And uh, it was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> and so that's that's what got me obsessed with conflict and, and writing this most recent book about it.
1: Well, I know you've got two other books that um, have done well. One was The Smartest Kids in the World in 2014. That was a New York Times bestseller and The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why in 2008. So, in a way, it seems like your your writing has been building up to this uh, new new venture with high conflict. And I, I just wanted to ask you this kind of an awkward question, but how, how did you decide to embrace this messy, stomach-churning topic of high <laughs> conflict?
2: Well, you know... In every case, books are my therapy. Like, it's my way, in addition to real therapy, it's my way of trying to find a way to make sense of a really wicked problem. So, with The Smartest Kids in the World, it was education, which I had written a lot about in the U.S., but I had kept hearing about these countries that allegedly educate all their kids to really high levels, and I couldn't – I just didn't believe it, honestly. I couldn't imagine what the, exactly what they were doing differently, so I followed American teenagers to those countries uh, and high schools in those countries for a year. And so in every case, including in High Conflict, the most recent book, I have one trick, <laughs> which, is, which is find people who have been through the woods and out again who can see the water they're swimming in in a way that the rest of us cannot and see what we can learn from them about what works, what doesn't, where we can locate hope. So, you know, whether it's people who have survived disasters or American kids who've been, you know, parachuted into other (laughs) countries to go to high school, or in this case, people and communities who have been stuck in really toxic conflict and are now in a much healthier kind of conflict.
1: Because it really gives a sense of hope. Your other books seem to have a lot of hope in them, and I think this book does too. So you focus in many ways on kind of the macro level of high conflict—group conflicts, gangs, city councils, polarized national politics— we with high conflict institute have focused more maybe in the micro. We've been focused on the interpersonal relationships, uh families, the workplace, legal disputes and personalities. It'd be kind of interesting to hear how you define high conflict and see how that may be similar or different at the macro level.
2: Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I'd love to hear where where the intersections are and where the divergences are. Um I and I think you know, for me, I think we both maybe started from the same place. Like for me, I was looking back at high conflict uh, divorces and um, the idea that there were these certain you know couples who were just stuck in perpetual cycles of blame um, for years in the courts. Right. And looking at that research and sort of expanding it outwards to, you know, what is often called intractable conflict or malignant conflict in international Um, relations and in other countries and trying to understand, you know, what is the distinguishing feature of high conflict? Um, For me, the way I think about it in my own head is it's any conflict that really takes on a life of its own. So it becomes conflict for conflict's sake. And as part of that, we become more and more certain of our own moral superiority and we start to make a lot of mistakes right about the other person or the other side, and then in time, it feels like the only acceptable solution is total victory or annihilation right yeah so everyone everyone suffers to different degrees but what what's what how do you define it though?
1: We tend to define it around personalities, so we see like you said a divorce conflict. From R, I did a study a few years ago, and I take a poll at seminars. I say, how many see it, a high-conflict divorce as one high-conflict person and the other is pretty reasonable trying to cope? And how many see it as two high-conflict people? And it tends to come out around 50-50. And so, so we focus more on the personality with four characteristics, preoccupation with blaming others 100%, all or nothing thinking uh unmanaged emotions and extreme behaviors which really i think fit with the dynamic you're seeing it's more the the details of that pattern of behavior and i think you're i like to call it a macro view you see the conflict itself as having a life of its own and i think we see more like looking at the individuals, what's the individual behavior, and can we change the individual's behavior, like our new ways for families method for training parents in divorce cases to learn a set of skills, like flexible thinking, managed emotions, moderate behavior, and checking themselves instead of blaming others. So it's, it's interesting, because I think we're looking really very similarly From different angles.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting, (laughs) right? Because on the one hand, they're intertwined, right? I mean, you can't you you can't separate the macro from the micro, although you know, you have to think about it that way sometimes, right? But I think what you and your books have taught me are about these interpersonal dynamics and the individual skill sets that we can use to manage them. And Also, when I think about the macro questions, we have to do all those things and stop designing our institutions to reward high conflict, right?
1: Right. (laughs) So we get this
2: kind of top-down and and (laughs) bottom-up solutions. We need both, right? Because that's kind of how we got here.
1: What's exciting is I think that there's a future in both, that the world needs to see it in a big way, but also look at their own involvement individually.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Let me ask you to get a little core of your book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, is what do you see as the primary reasons we get trapped?
2: You know, the four kind of tripwires that I focused on that seem to be present in every case that I looked at, whether it was a politician in California who got trapped in high conflict or a gang leader in Chicago or an activist in England or even a guerrilla fighter in Colombia. In every case, there were four conditions that were present to different degrees. Um, And those four conditions were um, humiliation, conflict entrepreneurs, which (laughs) you know a lot about, and also uh, corruption, perceived or real, right? Usually it's both. Um, And finally, binary group identities, where sort of a false binary of us versus them, labels that really oversimplify.
1: That very much fits, uh, I think, with our perspective. But it's interesting, you're seeing it in the group context. Now, could you just say a little bit more about conflict entrepreneurs? Because I think that concept really has a lot of merit, because some people really seem to benefit.
2: Right. I, I, so I, you know, as you know, I called you up months ago and said, Bill, do you think conflict entrepreneurs are high-conflict people? And we had this fascinating conversation about um, where those two terms overlap. Um, so I love, I love learning from that intersection. And I don't, you know, I don't pretend to, to have an answer to that. I think probably the answer we came up with was often, yes,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that they, they are the same. But basically, conflict entrepreneurs are people or platforms that exploit conflict for their own ends, right? And that could be for psychological ends, right? For attention, uh, for a sense of power, control, meaning, belonging. It could be for profit. It's usually, you know, (laughs) an unholy mix of both, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, what you opened my eyes to was the idea that that some organizations or platforms as you said could be really like calculating almost we need more conflict to boost sales or to boost eyeballs
2: <laughs> right right sometimes it's subconscious right but sometimes it's it's explicit i remember running into a national newspaper editor several years ago and he at a at a dinner in dc and he was saying how worried they were that trump was going to lose even though he personally was anti trump <laughs> He knew how good it was for readership.
1: Yeah, a lot of um, exposure. It's stunning to have this crossover, I think, from what's entertaining and governance.
2: Yeah, right.
1: And that's the idea.
2: Spectacle and governance have become one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think now that that politics is more about entertainment than government— and yet, it's the boundaries are so blurred, and that there's people that are making money by blurring those boundaries. So mm, it's mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. interesting and certainly concerning. Well, let me let me ask then your your key strategies for getting out of high conflict because I think that's good too.
2: Yeah, well, typically um the first step that most people and communities that I followed took, you know, again from all different walks of life, they would typically the first thing they would do actually would be to distance themselves from the conflict entrepreneurs in their lives right? And they didn't always call them that. Sometimes it was their lawyer. Sometimes it was their, you know, campaign advisor. Sometimes it was a colleague or a family member. And one way or another, for different reasons, they reach a saturation point in the conflict and they realize that the losses were outweighing the gains. There's usually some kind of shock, right, that um, precedes that realization. And they start to notice that there are certain people or sometimes, you know, it's who's in your social media feed, it's who, you you know, where you get your news, but they start to notice that these people, these conflict entrepreneurs are kind of feeding their worst instincts and they seem to delight in every twist and turn the conflict takes. Um, So that, that seemed to be the first step. And you'll appreciate this, Bill, that after the book came out, a bunch of people wrote to me and said, okay, great. Thanks a lot for giving us a name for this behavior, Uh (laughs) conflict entrepreneurs. What though do we do if we can't distance ourselves from the conflict entrepreneurs? Uh, You know, and so that's when I reached out to you and wrote a piece about that. And now I just send people to the High Conflict Institute because yes, there are (laughs) lots of cases where you can't, right? You can't that maybe they're your boss, or your husband or your ex husband. um, And you can't just create that distance.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's where we came up with really techniques for managing that relationship when you can't get away from that relationship. And you're absolutely right. So many people can't get away, like co-parents in divorce. They don't want to deal with the other person, but they have to.
2: But they have to. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And yeah.
0: Pe- people Great. that
1: don't want to leave their job, they may be a year from retirement and all of that. So it's tricky. But I think understanding this is good. So go ahead. The other, some of the other strategies.
2: Some of the other strategies, once, once people were able to get a little space, however that is, right, it might be, you know, from following your tips to manage the conflict and create some boundaries with the person and some sanity for themselves. However, they're able to get some space. Then the next step is typically investigating the understory of the conflict for themselves, for their opponents. And I think you and I have talked about this as well, but a lot of times, you know, there's the thing that conflict seems to be about, and then the thing it's really about. And it could be different things for different people, but it's really important to get clear about what it is. So just to take a quick example, one of the people that I followed for the book is a conflict expert named Gary Friedman, a mediator. Um, who teaches negotiation at Harvard and Stanford and has helped thousands of people through really difficult conflicts all over the world. And he ran for local office in his tiny town in California a few years ago at the request of his neighbors who really wanted him to, you know, come in and fix politics, you know, stop making it so toxic. And they figured who better, right, than Gary. Uh, And as he put it, It took about an eighth of a second before he got pulled into high conflict in his own (laughs) little town because that's how politics is designed, right? And he's human. Uh, For him, he did stop relying on his campaign advisor, who was using a lot of the techniques and rules of national politics. Uh, And he started relying on his wife. So he distanced himself from the conflict entrepreneur. But then he had to get really curious about what was really going on here for him. And for everyone else. And the truth is, he was bringing a lot to the table that he wasn't acknowledging. You know, he was trying to prove that 40 years of his work could fix politics, right? Without saying that. And so when it didn't work, when he ran into opposition, when people made fun of his, you know, code of conduct for the meetings and so forth, it felt deeply threatening and humiliating, right? So that's that other feature, humiliation. And that's where we get into real trouble, right? But at least he had to understand that for himself so that he could let go of some of the petty fights that he didn't really need to have and have the right fights that he really needed to have. Um, Because as you know, in high conflict, we often have a lot of the wrong fights with the wrong people at the wrong time, which means we're not having the right fight, right? That we really do need to have the kind of conflict that makes us stronger.
1: Yeah, and that's a really good point, that conflict itself isn't bad, that the conflict right. may help us lead to something new and better, but high conflict, that's where you get into trouble. Any more strategies?
2: Well, another thing he did was he that he really tried to rehumanize himself mm. and other people, but that meant one of the things that <laughs> comes up again and again when I hear from leaders right now, whether they're superintendents or pastors or uh, politicians, they're all really struggling, as you as you know, uh, in in high conflict in different ways. And their instinct, their intuition, when they have to make an unpopular decision, right now is to be incredibly certain, and stoic, never let them see you sweat, right? Um, Build a wall right? That's our intuition in conflict and totally understandable, right? You don't want to expose yourself to attack. But in reality, our intuition almost always makes high conflict worse. It's an amazing rule of thumb (laughs) that I see over and over again, right? Um, So in Gary's case, he had to reveal just 10%, not 100%, but reveal some of his humanity and admit when he didn't know the right answer, when he wasn't sure how to vote on something, but he was going to do this, this is what he was going to do and here's why, but he could appreciate the other side's argument and he was, you know, he he was struggling. And just admitting that made him much more human and therefore harder to dehumanize <laughs> for his opponents.
1: Yeah. That's a really good good point. What we find ourselves often saying is you have to do the opposite of what you feel like doing.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: It's it's stunning that that's the dynamics of this, and and I think just really helpful that you that you figured that out, but with what you were seeing.
2: So, like for you, it's the opposite: is you have to spend more time with conflict entrepreneurs or high conflict people, right, to understand them better. Is that an example?
1: Yeah. Well, I think what we've learned is to not kind of like. Like judo or something, is the negative energy coming at us? Is spin it around back towards them, oh. and and instead of when they're coming at us, you know, you're an idiot, Bill. You don't know what you're doing, is to respond with, "Wow, it sounds like you're really frustrated." Tell me more. What's frustrating uh, yes. you? Yes,
2: yes. Tell me more. Yes. And that's
1: something I know you you've gotten some of your writing is is to go deeper. And then you get more of what's really going on, which leads me to my next question, which is, you're a great storyteller in your book, and I think in all your writing, and one of your book's chapters is titled Complicating the Narrative. And in there, you told a story of how some liberals and conservatives learned to understand and like each other. So if you could explain Complicating the Narrative and tell us that story.
2: First of all, I love that idea of like the jujitsu of like taking the negative energy and turning it, <laughs> deflecting it. Um, tell me more is one of the go-to questions that um, I now train journalists on mm-hmm. to just have in their pocket, especially when you find yourself feeling really put off mm-hmm. by what someone has just told you in an interview. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, you know, assuming it's not a live interview, but when <laughs> someone says something like really... Offensive, your instinct, my instinct is just to shut it down. Like, I just Mm want to, I don't want to, or I want to shut them down, right? Just verbally. And, and in fact, what is way more powerful is to say, tell me more. Tell me more about that. Like, how did you come to that? I'm so curious, you know? And it takes a lot of practice uh, because it's not. It's not intuitive, but I, I swear it has changed my life, those three words. Um, and uh, we now, it's on my wall. It's one of the ah, questions we ask in conflict for, uh,
1: fantastic. for the work
2: I do now that, that just really, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always lead to deeper revelations, but it always leads to better outcomes than the alternatives.
1: It, cal- <laughs> it, calms, it calms the conflict.
2: Yeah, it's unexpected. It, you you step out of the dance, right, and and it takes the other person by surprise. So you have to mean it. Is the hardest part, I think.
1: Um, right, right. <laughs> well, actually, you don't have to mean it. You can just <laughs> you don't do to, it, and yeah. then then you as long as you're listening. And then you do start to mean it. Cause yeah, you can
2: kind of get ahead of it and then catch up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, we we I I worked in alcohol and drug treatment for a few years, and one of the sayings they had is "fake it till you make it," <laughs> and I think it's worth faking interest and curiosity because then you'll become interested and curious, and that's I know one of the themes that you like to promote.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I love that. Um. So, yeah, sorry, to answer your question, yeah, complicating, about the, complicating narrative, the narrative. What does
1: that mean? And
2: yeah, yeah, so there's a place at Columbia University, a lab called the Difficult Conversations Lab, um, which is run by a professor named Peter Coleman and his colleagues, and they have run over five hundred people through you know awkward, tense conversations about hot button controversial issues like gun control and abortion. over many years. And then they record those encounters and study them all kinds of ways. And they basically found there's, you know, roughly two categories of conversations. One are the kinds of conversations that go pretty badly, right, that get stuck. um, And people leave, you know, more annoyed and unsatisfied than they came in. They just experience one or two negative emotions over and over. And then there's another category of conversations, which people did experience negative emotions, they experienced anger, frustration, but then they have flashes of curiosity, maybe even humor, back to anger, maybe a flash of understanding. So it's like a whole galaxy of emotion. And in those conversations, people ask more questions, and they emerge from the lab more satisfied than when they came in. So, you know, that, right, looks a lot more like good conflict, like the kind of conflict that we need more of, (laughs) you know, where Um, where we learn something about ourselves, the other side, or the problem that we didn't know before, even as we continue to disagree. So then they were trying to figure out, well, how could they induce those good conflict conversations? And what they found is, if they exposed people to a short news story, print news story to read before they went in, they could make a significant difference. And here's the trick. They took the control group, read a traditional news story about some other controversial issue, and it had, you know, two sides, back and forth. And then the treatment group was given a news story of the same length, which is important, not longer, that had roughly the same facts, but it was framed as a more complicated problem. So, in other words, there weren't just two sides to the gun debate there were three or four or five. And that is actually more accurate, in fact, right? And it acknowledged that people have complicated emotions about, say, abortion, that most Americans are neither on one extreme or the other. And that in the polling, if you ask the question slightly differently, you get very different answers. There's a lot of internal conflict over abortion. So anyway, when they gave people that more complicated narrative. People went into the lab and were much more likely to have those better conversations about conflict, even on an unrelated topic. So, you know, the implication for journalists, although they didn't do this for journalists, but the implication for journalists was pretty, pretty exciting and pretty clear, which is in times of high conflict, complexity is breaking news It's more interesting and it's more accurate and it is contagious. So people get more curious and people get more out of the conflict as opposed to just feeling despair and misery and contempt.
1: I I just think that's excellent. And that that gives details of how to think about conflict instead of just kind of an all or nothing in or out view is just think at a more complicated level. Well, let me ask you, because this is very exciting, what, what you're teaching, is say a little bit about what you're teaching to journalists, because that's a whole area. We, we've we never even gone there. And yet you're, you're inside that field. So you're the perfect person for that.
2: Yeah, I would actually love to have you go there. Like, I think it would be fascinating <laughs> to get you or Megan or, you know, just talking to journalists about how they can manage high conflict people. In their own work, in their newsroom, uh, in the communities they serve. Um so, so yeah, so what we do, so with my colleague, this all started with a nonprofit called the Solutions Journalism Network, and they're the ones who asked me to write this piece, which was called Complicating the Narrative, which is how I found out about the Difficult Conversations Lab, and sort of started me down this path. And after that piece came out, a bunch of newsrooms reached out to them and said, "Hey, could you train us in some of these skills so we could cover conflict more effectively?" And to their credit, Solutions Journalism was like, "Sure." And they um, they they created a curriculum with uh, a TV and radio journalist who's incredibly talented, named Helen Bien Duty Hofer, and she trained you know over a thousand journalists on sort of deep listening skills and asking different questions, like you know, saying, tell me more, that kind of thing. And then since then, she and I have started um, an organization called Good Conflict, where we build on those ideas and we go in and we help newsrooms and other organizations understand that distinction between high conflict and good conflict, um, what to look for so that you avoid high conflict, or at least don't make it worse and then also how to map the conflicts that your community is facing right because that's not something that that's something that researchers often do in in high conflict but not something that journalists do and then how to investigate the understory like like i mentioned like how to get underneath the usual talking points of the conflict
1: that's excellent that's exciting well that leads to my last question which is also a journalism question So, and you can tell me what's wrong with the way I frame this question. So, (laughs) we're told every day that our nation is hopelessly polarized by the news media is telling us that. Many of us in the conflict resolution field don't really buy it. We don't say we're that polarized. So, my question is, is the news media accurately reporting this polarization, or is the news media actively driving this polarization?
2: Hmm. Interesting. What I'm curious, I know I'm supposed to answer the questions and you're supposed to ask. But can I ask you real quick what makes you say that you don't think the country's polarized? I have some ideas, but I'm curious.
1: Oh, myself, just from so much of our personal experience, is people with quite different opinions speaking one to one. For example, police, community, that stuff. When you get people speaking one to one, polarization which is mostly emotional, at least that's my view. Polarization's an emotional, not logical process. And that the emotional stuff just melts away, and people like each other. There's also an article I read, the New York Times did a study with over 500 people. In 2019, in uh, Houston, Texas, they got representative sample of the country together and had them talk in small groups one-to-one, and and people became much less emotionally polarized. They didn't necessarily reverse their opinions, but they they liked each other, and some of them continued and formed friendships with people with different points of view. I know in my life, I have people with different points of view, but we still like each other.
2: Right, right. So you're talking about the deliberative democracy approach to getting people together to have meaningful conversations with some guardrails, right? And, um, and I I think that's, I think that's right. And it's interesting how, you know, when you said polarization is mostly emotional, um, I think that's maybe where the answer lies, right? So there's two kinds of polarization in the research. One is um, ideological polarization, which is actually not that Extreme in the U.S., but then there's affective polarization, which is dislike and distrust of the other side of opposing partisans, right? And that um, that is quite high by almost any measure compared to other countries, compared to our own history. Um, so it's fascinating, right? Because a lot of that has to do with our political segregation, has to do with um, the way certain uh, news outlets have really um, kind of inflamed. The emotional, the fear, the dislike, the distrust, right? Um, It has to do with the way social media amplifies extremists. So um, something like 95% of political tweets are done by, you know, 5% of Twitter users.
1: Interesting. And remember
2: that 80% of Americans do not use Twitter at all.
1: Uh Uh-huh. I'm one of those. I don't touch (laughs) it. Yeah, there
2: you go. So maybe that's why you don't think we're that polarized, right? So part of it is a distortion.
1: Yeah.
2: Um based on what lens you're looking through and part of it is that distortion making becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: And does the news media bear some responsibility for that? Oh for, for sure, that? absolutely.
2: Okay. 100%. Okay, yeah. But- I mean, I think it's hard to generalize because there's like a huge huge variety of uh people and business models under the umbrella of news media, but But yeah, I think all of them bear different degrees of responsibility, as does social media. I mean, they're all attention-based economies, right? Like, they're all trying to get your attention. And the cheapest, laziest, easiest way to do that is through outrage and fear.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. There's We could talk on, I can already tell, for a few hours. (laughs) But we really appreciate you coming on, giving us your thoughts, telling us what's in, your book, The high, high Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. And I, I just personally want to recommend it. It's, it's great storytelling as well as making the key points that we really agree with. We need to reduce the high conflict in the world and still have conflict. What do you call it? Good conflict.
2: Good conflict. Yes. Well, thank you, Bill. I'm very grateful to be in conversation with you and for all of your generous help and wisdom over the past couple of years. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing.
0: A big thanks, Amanda, for joining Bill today. What a fascinating conversation. I, I'm sure our listeners enjoyed this very much. So we're very grateful to have had you on our show and and grateful for the time that you spent talking with us and sharing your information and wisdom with our listeners. As Bill mentioned, the title of Amanda's book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. You'll find the link in the show notes. Um, and of course, it's widely available in various formats everywhere books are sold in the world. You'll be able to find her other books on her website, which we've also listed in the links, along with a couple of um, articles that she's either been interviewed in and some book excerpts. You'll find everything in the show notes. So next week um, is our monthly Q&A lab. We'll answer two questions. One from a parent who's dealing with a high-conflict 19-year-old son with violent, aggressive behaviors and who wants her to admit to abuse in his childhood that actually didn't happen. And second, we'll answer a question about what to do in a group with a high-conflict individual, particularly in a group where everything is meant to be equal. How to handle the paranoia and other high-conflict behaviors, including being erased from the group, and from social media memory. So send your questions to podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or submit them to highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast. Tell your friends about us, and we'd be very grateful if you'd leave a review wherever you listen to our podcast. Until next week, have a great one, and keep learning about high conflict behavior so you can handle it in your life and keep striving toward the missing piece. It's all your fault is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Wolf Samuels, John Coggins, and Ziv Moran. Find the show, show notes, and transcripts at TrueStory.fm or highconflictinstitute.com/slash podcast. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.